So a few months went by, almost six months, before I even walked into a caregiver support group. Wow. What took you so long? My ego, my attitude, Mm. the stigma and the stereotypes of being a, a male caregiver and the embarrassment, the shame I had because my dad was going through this. When I look back, it's a life lesson that I had to go through. I had to process these decisions to seek help, to understand what a caregiver need is. I remember walking into that group and no one looked like me. Everyone was older. Yeah. There was a big age gap Mm -hmm. and there was a gender ratio, more females than males. But I left there welcomed, understanding that's where I needed to be. I needed to reinforce my mental well-being because this was going to take a lot out of me. Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. You just heard from Carlos Olivias, someone who, like me, was unexpectedly put into a situation where he was primarily responsible for taking care of someone he loved, in his case, his father. And as you could probably tell, Carlos learned a lesson that took me too long to really understand. Caregivers are stronger together. In my experience, I find that a lot of caregivers are isolated. I certainly was because there's simply just too much to do. There are so many hours in the day and the thought of reaching out to someone else and heaven forbid getting into a car, (laughs) driving to another location, just seemed absolutely overwhelming. And there's also this emotional reluctance to reach out to other caregivers. I felt like the burden that I was carrying as I was trying to figure out what even was Christopher's needs or what was the situation going to be like in the future, I couldn't fathom it. And because it was so overwhelming to me, I stayed in my head about it, and I just assumed it would be too overwhelming for other people as well. It's like I explained to my friend once, this kind of crushing responsibility and pain not to be dramatic, but also to be very dramatic. I don't want to share it with anyone else because I don't want anyone else to experience it. But what's tricky about thinking about that situation, especially when you're isolated physically, is that just reaching out to someone for emotional support, someone who knows what it's like to be a full-time caregiver and not know what the future looks like, even if they don't know what to do or what to say, even if they can't really help you, it makes you feel better. In this series so far, we've talked about the overwhelming loneliness that caregivers can feel. We've gone in-depth about how we can talk to manage the mental load of caring for another person full-time. But what we haven't discussed is how we as caregivers can band together, not only to alleviate the burdens of caregiving right now, but to fight for change that will create a better future for the caregivers to come. While in last week's episode, we talked about the change that we can make now as individuals. This week, we want to talk about the changes that we can make for the future of caregiving together. That's all in this episode of the Lisa Show series on caregiving. 
Later on, you'll hear from caregivers Elizabeth Miller, Billy Short, Jillian Benfield, and Ushua Tawari about their experiences building communities of caregivers and how they're working for systematic change. But first, I want to share with you a conversation I had with Shanna Jones. Shanna Jones has been taking care of her husband, Doug, who has dementia for six years now. And she told about how when the system fell short, she went looking for support elsewhere. We got no resources at the doctor's office. We got no, no, you know, prognosis. We, we just were told, this is what you do and come back in six months. Um, and see us again, and that was it. I was so incredibly frustrated, um, and that's when I found the support group and met with the woman in charge of it. Um, her name is Sheila Welch. She's really great here in Georgia. And I know I said I don't think Doug has changed, but I'm feeling more and more distressed. And then she was able to talk to me about dementia because she knows a lot about it. And I was able to do a lot of research online. And the more self-educated I became, the better I was able to handle all of it, you know, just the whole thought of it. But yeah, at the doctor's office, it was really dismal, the amount of information we got. Shanna's experience is not uncommon. As we've talked to caregivers throughout the production of this series, support groups came up again and again. There's just something about sitting down with people who have had similar struggles to you that just lifts some small burden from your shoulders. Here's another example from caregiving consultant Elizabeth Miller. I'm in Atlanta, so I do a uh, in-person group that meets once a month. We've been meeting for six years, and we've formed friendships through caregiving. And they, some of them keep coming long after the people have passed because they pay it forward. And that's when you know that you've created that kind of strong sense of friendships and community. We do virtual events. So I'm part of a group called daughterhood.org, and we do virtual drop-ins. Some of them are topical. Some of them are just ad hoc drop-ins where people can, might get me as a person who's leading that, might get somebody else that's leading that. So that's a way that it can scale because I'm one person. Yeah. Um, but I want people to have that that go-to community. And then I do something called a Happy Healthy Caregiver Virtual Cafe. So for me, I didn't want caregiving to be this like heavy support thing yeah. necessarily. I'm not saying we don't cry sometimes when we're in those intimate settings, but I wanted to give people tools and support without them really knowing it, like incognito. So we come in, I usually have a, a, a person that's doing it with me. So the one coming up is a yoga, we're doing chair yoga. We've done sing-alongs. We've done dance parties. We've done self-care bingo. You know, there's usually prizes involved because who doesn't want to win a prize? <laughs> and I just want to really give people like a true break in their day. So we do those every other month. Um, How? So I love to just think of ideas of ways that we can get more people to, to get together. I love that in Elizabeth's experience, it isn't just about getting together to talk about how hard caregiving is. It's also just about being around people who have shared our same struggles, whether you're talking about it or not. I had an interesting experience because when I took my husband to an ALS support group for other people living with ALS, 
It was very difficult for me. It was very stressful and I always left feeling overwhelmingly sad. It wasn't helping. But I realized later on it's because that support group wasn't for me. I was the caregiver of someone living with ALS. Those living with ALS needed to connect with other people living with ALS. That was not my support group. My support group came later as I talked with other caregivers and I talked to other widows and widowers. And the part that was so connecting about it for me was just getting together with other caregivers is just a great help and support. But what about the times when a caregiver doesn't have the flexibility to step away and go to a support meeting or a yoga class? Why does it seem so hard to get the help that we need when we're actively in the middle of caregiving? This question really haunts me because I had no solution when I was in the middle of it, but it only came later when I was out of the major role of caregiving. Billy Short is a mother of two and a full-time caregiver to her developmentally disabled adult daughter. She explained to me why caregiving can be so different from other crisis scenarios and why people might be hesitant to step in and help. I often say that caregiving is not a solo mission, it's a group project. And as a society, we need to expand that group because the group is way too small right now. And caregivers are struggling, especially, I think, through COVID. I think COVID highlighted just how tough things are. Mm-hmm. If you can imagine the isolation that you went through during COVID as a nation, as a, as a world, as a society, that's the life of most caregivers day in and day out, 24-7. Yeah. I loved your series you did on self-care, but I'm like, <laughs> it's not always possible sometimes for caregivers to step away from that job and no. just say, hey— I'm going to go take a 20-minute walk around the block. (laughs) And that'll fix everything. Or I'll go get a Peace out, Emily. (laughs) I'll go get a a, a facial. Everything will be great. Okay, and we're back. No, (laughs) Right. Fundamentally different conversations about what self-care means to caregivers and and normals. So it's changed. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, it changes. And... There are ways to do it. I love what I do. I love my daughter. I wouldn't change her. I I mean, I adore her. I would just love more support. And I think that others can support, but I think a lot of people are scared to jump in. They're scared to help. They're scared to take on that challenge. I think that a part of the fear that Billy mentioned is that people feel like once they get involved, it's going to be so much that they're going to get sucked into the tide. But I think that many people who know and love a caregiver underestimate how just a little bit of help, whatever they can do, can be so meaningful. I asked Billy to tell me about a time when a little bit of help went a long way. When my daughter was first diagnosed, she was, um, that we knew she was going to have lifelong disabilities. I had a couple of friends from church come and just clean my house and do laundry. I was mortified to let them into my house. My house was a wreck. I had two kids under three. Mm -hmm. My house was upside down. We were doing therapies three and four times a week with my daughter, doctor's appointments. I just wasn't home and, you know, dealing with two small children as it is. It was challenging. And a couple of people from our church actually came. They cleaned. They were sweeping my floors, folding laundry, holding my son, taking him to the park, just getting my typical son out of the house for a little bit. I think that was really meaningful. And I really, truly believe we can help people in easier ways than we think. We think that they have to come and take care of Emily and take her off our hands or, you know, you know, go and have a week away. But... Don't ask a caregiver what you can do for them. 
give them choices. They could say, hey, I would love to help you out. Would you like me to bring you a coffee one day this week? Or would you like me to drop off dinner on Tuesday or Wednesday? Would a gas card be more helpful or, you know, a DoorDash card? Don't let caregivers make another decision. Make it for them. Give them an option between one or two things. But the let me know if you need any help is not very helpful. I love this from Billy. I know that when I was in the most difficult periods of caring for my husband, an unexpected Uber Eats delivery could just make all the difference. Shanna also shared with me her trick for making conversations with those who want to help a little easier. Sometimes when you get yourself in a situation where it's really easy for them to just shy away and not really want to talk to you or hear you or know about what's going on. And I think a lot of that is because they just don't know what to do. Um, So I learned along the way to keep a list. So if someone says, what do you need? I look at them and I figure out what can they do that would be helpful that I know they can do. And then I just tell them, (laughs) but um, you can ask for someone to take your, your loved one to lunch or to breakfast or um, drive them somewhere or come over and just visit. There are so many things, you know, it's, it's not even like, and you know, bring a meal or yeah. anything like that. It's, it's just a little, I mean, it's the littlest things like take a walk, just, you know, engage, 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 engage. I think that's a really important thing. These small and simple acts that Billy and Shanna described, giving someone a ride, dropping off a meal, folding some laundry, are all kinds of things that, when you add them up over time and across relationships, build a thriving community of mutual love and support for both caregivers and non-caregivers alike. Now, in my personal experience and in my research for this show, I found that one of the harshest realities of caregiving in our modern world is that no matter how supportive of a community you'll find yourself in, we will always be left wanting for help when the institutions around us are indifferent to caregivers. Like we talked about in our last episode, there are a thousand ways in which we could improve the world to make it easier to care for one another. And while, like we talked about last week, we can all become better self-advocates in order to better navigate these institutional obstacles, that doesn't mean it's a lost cause to try and change them. You may remember caregiver Jillian Benfield from the previous episode, where she told us about her experience taking care of her child with Down syndrome. Here's what she suggested we should prioritize. So I'm very passionate about inclusion in general, but I do think that it has to start at school. I think if we don't have our typically developing kids around kids with disabilities, then um, people with disabilities will always be othered because we don't know them. We didn't grow up alongside them if they live separately. And I think that God designed us in in a way to live life together and interdependently. Studies have only shown positive outcomes for when kids with disabilities are included in general education classrooms, Um, not only for the kids who with disabilities, but also for kids without, because it makes them more patient, it makes them um, more empathetic, and it actually helps them to learn the material better because they often are helping the kids with disabilities, like reteaching it, which is a good way of learning, right? So um, that is a big piece of advocacy for me. I really appreciate Jillian's perspective here. She has a unique view into how changing schools can impact caregiving for generations to come. 
And I'm learning that the lack of this kind of inclusion, whether it's in schools or anywhere, seems to indicate a larger issue with the way the world sees caregivers. Here's how Billy described it. I think as a country, we've gotten away from this idea that caregiving is an admirable thing. Mm -hmm. Like kind of how I said, oh, caregiving, that is not very admirable. But it really is. It's such a beautiful gift of service to give somebody. And people think usually it's not educated people that are, you know, generally in the caregiving or they can't get other jobs. But I think it takes the person with a certain kind of passion and heart Mm -hmm. to care for others. And I think we need to be like kind of lifting the job of caregiving onto a pedestal. We need to entice people to want to go into that career. We need to be paying more, educating more, expanding services that are available because as our population ages, we're going to need more caregivers. It's not anything we're going to need less of. And I know there's quite a shortage of caregivers right now. Yeah. Like paid caregivers. So a lot of the burden is falling on primary family members. We really need to expand that and we need to offer more resources. I also asked Billy to describe her personal experience with an institution that she wants to see change for the better. We were a family that attended church for years until Emily got older. I have written about that. It has been a struggle to find a church that's accepting of my daughter as she gets older. So I would say that's another area that churches could really step up and really accept these families fully and 100% and find ways to make them be able to attend services. Um, Once Emily was about eight or nine, we really haven't, we've tried five or six different places and established churches haven't really been a part of the last decade of our lives. And that was a rough patch. I mean, I I did feel really lost and abandoned during that, but I never lost my faith in God. I knew He was still there. I just felt like people don't know how to show up. And you got to give a lot of grace to people. They don't always know how to show up and they aren't always going to show up the way you think. And sometimes the people you think are going to be there when the road is really hard, they're not there. But other people are going to surprise the heck out of you and come out of left field and step in and have your back. Billy's experience at church is a clear example of how even the most well-meaning people can miss the mark when it comes to supporting caregivers if they're not in active dialogue with the caregivers about their needs. I know what it feels like when everything's a struggle. When you walk into a concert or a school or a grocery store or a bank, any place just trying to live a quote-unquote normal life and the realities of what you're doing smack you in the face because you are the one that sees it and you're the only one that can advocate for it. And you're so tired taking care of someone that you want to change the world, but maybe tomorrow. It's particularly difficult when you're dealing with caring, good people who don't know where to go for help, who don't know what it's like, and don't know how to help and how to offer it. So you're never dealing or having a conversation with someone who is unkind or mean. That's easy. You can get angry. You can tell them that they're wrong. But when they're kind and they're right and they're limited, they don't have as many tools to offer you to help. And you desperately need those tools. I had to learn to take a deep breath and give other people grace, give myself grace for the problems that I couldn't solve that desperately needed to be solved as I recognized them in the moment. 
And that was really difficult. But it's that grace that Billy mentioned, that forgiveness and compassion for those who are trying their best that can empower us as caregivers to find peace in our own situation while still working and fighting to create a better future for the caregivers that will come after us. Something that I had to come to learn was to offer that grace, not only in the moment, but after. When people look back and said, oh, that was so hard and I don't know how you did it. Years later, I've realized that part of my grieving process is not only grieving my husband and the life and the future that I thought that we would have and the pain of that situation, but it's also grieving the loss of connection and help that I thought I had, but didn't get in that moment. And part of my own sort of recovery and part of my own healing has been forgiving those who supported me, but imperfectly, just like I served and helped Christopher imperfectly. Making peace with others is making peace with yourself, that we're all bumping into each other and our best is going to look different on different days. And that's true for other people as well. I have found that offering other people that grace is letting go of an imperfect system and it's letting go of just the overwhelming act of caregiving in a life and death situation. Now, as we're learning to make peace with what we can't change, I wanna talk about the things that we can change by hearing from a caregiver who is making a difference. I talked to Usha Tawari, a woman who spent five years caring for her ailing mother. She told me how she was inspired to work for systematic change when she went to a fundraising walk for Alzheimer's research. You know, I went to their walk. It was close by to where I lived. And I thought, you know what, let me go sit down and kind of absorb what this is all about. Um, And I sat there and I became very emotional hearing the stories, um, what people were going through and to be surrounded by caregivers and individuals diagnosed um, with Alzheimer's, it was very overwhelming. And I think that was the moment when I realized I'm going to dedicate whatever time I have in honor of my mom and those um, individuals who who are um, facing this disease and the caregivers, because unfortunately, as we know now, there's no cure. Usha was in a situation similar to mine and to a lot of caregivers. She had spent years spending every moment caring for someone she loved, and she had seen up close how the institutions meant to support her still had so far to go before they were truly meeting caregivers' needs. So she decided to do her best to make a difference. I live in Florida. That's very important to me to educate the community that I live in about the issues that they have challenges with or don't need, don't know how to seek the resources. So I kind of use my professional um, life to navigate this journey as well and putting myself in a situation because I was in a way in a constituent situation, not knowing where to go for resources, what worked, what didn't work, um, stressed and challenged seeking solutions. I asked Usha what specific steps she took to connect with the Alzheimer's community in order to enact lasting change. 
So what I did was I did reach out to my local um, Alzheimer's Association in Orlando, and I also connected with their policy team via LinkedIn, and I was basically hounding them, and they're like, who is this girl? And I basically said, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Let me know how I can volunteer. And then, um, you know, I spoke with them, and then one thing led to another was writing letters to the editor, um, you know, was going to Washington, D.C., was speaking at my local delegation um, that traveled to the Florida representatives um, and state senators. And um, then I started speaking publicly about it. When Usha says one thing led to another, she's humbly summarizing months and years of concentrated effort. She's committed to making small efforts regularly that over time added up to making a big difference. She told me about some of those small, simple things she did that had a huge impact. I also started to host little forums. I started with my friends to let them, you know, tell them what dementia is, where to get resources. I would have someone from the Alzheimer's Association there. I also participated in the walk. I was involved with that, kind of with recruiting, fundraising. And um, so I've been involved in various aspects of it. Um, I also started uh, my social media uh, where I started to share my mom's story personally, like videos of what she was going through. And that just kind of gave me the courage to keep going. And, you know, last year I had some speaking opportunities um, for caregiving panels and just continuing to share the information. Whether it's sharing her personal story on social media, meeting with her friends to help them understand Alzheimer's better, or making calls to local organizations asking how she can volunteer, I love the example Usha sets of taking simple steps that are available to anyone in any caregiving capacity. And like I mentioned earlier, it's these simple steps that, when added together across a community of caregivers and over a long period of time, can grow into a tidal wave of power for good. If one person, like Usha, can accomplish so much for the sake of future caregivers, imagine what a thriving, passionate, informed community of caregivers can do. When I was caregiving, I promised myself that I wouldn't forget. I promised myself that I would remember certain moments. And one of those moments on my list was that I would honor Christopher's memory by fundraising for ALS research for the rest of my life in whatever capacity I could. I remember he felt conflicted on having such good care um, by doctors and nurses and equipment and and volunteers and friends and family that he would say to me regularly, well, what do other people do? What do they do when they don't have the kind of resources that I have? And we both knew the answer. They would die earlier, they would be in pain, they would suffer. That was the answer that we didn't want to admit in the moment. So now I am committed to make systematic changes. I promise to donate the equipment we had used. I promised to fundraise, I promised to donate to ALS research. I promise to make it better for other people. And I'm not doing a really great job, but I am trying little by little because I don't want to be immobilized by the fact that unless I do something grand, it doesn't count because I want to remember what that was like. Every donation counted. Every dollar counted. Every piece of equipment counted. Every bit of awareness counted. 
And that brings about change. And it means a lot to me because I know it meant a lot to Christopher to keep that promise. Doing something is always better than doing nothing. Small and simple things do add up to make great change. Waiting to do something that is perfectly organized and is a grand gesture is just lying to yourself. I think that if we all banded together with those small and simple things, that it can make a big systematic change. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. It's hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by McKay Menden, Becca Hurley, Blake Morse, and Avery Stoneley, with extra production help from Michael Combs, with music and post production by Gracie Davis. Julian Benfield is a caregiver, news anchor, and author of the book, The Gift of the Unexpected. Usha Tawari is host of the podcast, The Indian Caregiver, A Journey by Usha Tawari. An additional thanks to Billy Short, Elizabeth Miller, Shanna Jones, and Carlos Olivas. Links and more information about all of our guests' work today can be found in the episode description. <laughs>